Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 89. And the Weekly Word Podcast is an, a podcast about ultra-endurance and endurance training. But in order to train for endurance events, we need to have a perspective and a mindset with regards to how we're going to get these hours and this training done. And in order to do that effectively, we need to somehow carve out the time we need every day in order to train, in order to prepare, in order to eat properly, in order to get the sleep and body care we need, the recovery, in order to have the adaptations for the training that we're doing. But all that ties into also being able to make a living. You know, we all have jobs and a career and a professional life, the one that we get paid for. And then throw in, we also have a family and loved ones and people very dear to us and relationships that need to be um, tended to. And that all needs to stay in some sort of balance and harmony. And that's why so often on this podcast talk about that three-legged stool. The three legs being work and professional life, the other leg being family and personal relationships and personal life. And finally, the third leg being our training, our self-care, our time with with ourselves, with our training, with our bodies, with our care for that that tool, that um, machine that we're cultivating in order to do an endurance event. And my job as a coach, as as an endurance coach, is to take you on that journey. to achieve outcomes, to achieve goals that are on the far edge of what you believe you're capable of. And in many cases, you didn't think you were capable of, but you're willing to dive in. You're willing to be curious, a little bit fearful, and find out what's on the other end of that spectrum of what you felt you're capable of, what's beyond what what you know you can do, and what It becomes the new normal of what you now can do because you trained for it, you completed it, you did it, you took on that adventure, and you kicked out the other side a new person. And not necessarily a transformed person, but a new person in that your perspective of normal, of distances, of training hours, of capabilities, of knowledge, of understanding how your body works has changed. And it only catapults you into a new spectrum, a new level, a new, um, you're no longer on the ground floor, but to a new level, the first or second or third floor of something that you might be building with regards to a future um, curiosity or something you've always wanted to do. Always wanted to do an Ironman, always wanted to do an Ultraman, always wanted to do a 100-mile run, always wanted to do a 50-mile run, always wanted to find out what it's like to swim in the open ocean for four, five, six hours, or swim across across, um, a lake, like let's say Lake Tahoe for 10 miles, or lengthwise 22 miles, or um, what it's like to stand up paddle for six to eight to 12 hours, Um, what it's like to row um, across a huge body of water, what it's like to run um, for hours on end through a desert, up a mountain, around a mountain. Um, There's a zillion adventures and more and more that crop up every day. But they all have, in this case, what we're talking about, one thing in common. That's endurance and efficiency and economy and 
energy output being very well applied and spaced out and saved and then surges and then different uses of energy and so forth and fueling and hydrating and mindset and sleep and recovery and all those things that all ties into your adventure, your goals, your outcomes, and creating the new normal. Because your understanding of each one of those just creates a new you. Understanding your nutrition better is a new you. You have new knowledge for how you will race. You become mature in this sport every day by doing the work, by doing the training, by observing and paying attention to your body, to listening to your body. And so that's the fundamentals of this podcast. But then also, as I was saying earlier, the, the balance of that is very important. And in order for you to last for a long time in this sport because of the health benefits, because of the mindset benefits, because of your own growth benefits, um, I believe in that balance very, very deeply. Because I also believe that the more time you can spend with yourself training, and not talking about many hours a day, but I'm talking about consistently over many years, an hour or two a day, or 90 minutes a day, or longer weekends, and so forth. I believe the more you become in tune with your body, I believe the healthier you remain and become. But I also believe that you become more in tune with your deeper self, and your self-growth is um, facilitated by your self-care. And by listening to your body daily, you get an opportunity to hear what your soul, what your higher consciousness might be saying to you, might be whispering to you all the time. But because of our busy lives, we have a difficulty in hearing it. And don't get me wrong, I'm the same way. My busy life or my days are drown out the whispers that my higher consciousness, that myself, that my soul, my spirit, whatever you want to call it, might be saying. But it's when I'm out there going on a two, three hour run, or I'm out there on a three, four hour bike ride, or I'm out there on a swim, that doesn't mean I'm in the pool where I can just turn the brain off and swim in one direction for many, 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 many minutes and strokes. Ever so gently, the daily um, noise starts to be drowned out by the rhythm of training, of breathing, of listening to my body, of heart rate. And all the signals in my body and our bodies in general, I believe this for everybody, start turning on in a different way to nature, to hearing what's going on, to how it is meant to be used, our body. Moving, active, elevated heart rate, um, controlled deeper breathing, all that helps turn on those signals so that we become more in tune with ourselves and our body. And with that, I think once that, once you're moving that tuning on the radio dial and you start trying to zero in on uh, from all the static and all of a sudden you come across a station real suddenly and it's not there for long, but you hear a couple of words or you hear a, a melody or something beautiful for a few seconds as you're turning that radio dial or as you hit that seek button through the radio station too quickly. And then you go back to try and find it, but you don't find it again. That's the daily whisper. 
And that's an opportunity as we go back to training every day. You know, and not again, not a lot of hours, just frequently having setting up the time to have an opportunity to turn that radio dial, to hear that talk, to hear that music again, sets you up for being able to find it more and more frequently. And that is, in my opinion, and much of what I've been reading and looking into more and more lately, but also listening to and talking to people that have a better understanding of this also from a psychological standpoint, um, that is, I believe, our self talking to us, our subconscious, our higher consciousness, our true self. And I believe through our daily training and by me talking about this frequently and your ability to do this for longer periods of time versus just one Ironman, let's say, or one marathon or 150K, and then moving on with your life, but continuing to listen to that and understand that and trying to mess with that radio dial more and more and narrow down the width of that, that bandwidth of that radio station and finding it quicker and listening longer every day. That's what I'm talking about with self-growth and self-care and understanding and becoming a better, smarter, not smarter in an intelligent way, but smarter in the bigger picture of who we are on this planet person. And I'm not saying endurance training and training in general is the answer to that, but I think it helps us. I think it starts there because with a healthy body, a fit body, we have the ability to listen to it more frequently. We are better at tuning into it. And again, there's that tuning again. And then also hearing those whispers, those notes, that radio station, that person talking on the radio dial that we have such a difficulty hearing in our daily lives. You know, it's too much noise, right? And I don't say that as criticism because we all have to live our lives. But again, if, like I said on a few podcasts ago, if you have the opportunity every day for 60, 75, 90 minutes to spend some time with yourself, the value of that is huge. Not only from a professional standpoint, creativity, energetic, vitality. Um, so much happens when you're fitter and you'll be able to work more and concentrate better and more disciplined and more focused and work longer hours with regards to a project push or you have a goal-oriented mindset like that in order to follow through, or that you have more energy and you're fitter for your family and patience and perspective and a calmness, but yet a vitality and energy level to you that um, creates and helps only the loved ones around you even more. Your, your, your awareness and your ability to be fully present because you had some self-care every day, because you spent some time with yourself, you're able to be more present for them and dive into it with them. And that you all know that from your patience and your calmness when you do get a workout in, when you do get to spend some time with yourself, how different you are with your loved ones and your family and your children and your, your wife or husband or boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever that is, because you're at ease. And of course, the benefits with regards to your own training and how good you feel that you're making strides and steps towards your goal, towards what you set forth to do, right? And that's part of us from a long, long evolutionary aspect that um, 
when we put forth a goal to achieve something, it really taps into something deeper within us. And that is about, you know, um, trying to fulfill a task, whether it's back in our tribal times or with regards to survival. In order to survive, I need to achieve this. In order to not be kicked out of the tribe, I need to achieve this. And systematically and methodically working towards that. And that's also part of our deep primal urges that achieving a goal, achieving a desired outcome and how that makes us feel and our confidence and how that portrays us in our society, in our tribe, and in our contributions to the world around us. <laughs> so that's the Weekly Word Podcast. So, whoo, a lot in there, but I like that radio dial thing. I'm going to have to write that down. That just came as I was talking. Um, what are we going to talk about this week? Well, there's a variety of topics um, that have come up due to emails, um, not because of podcast, podcast questions, but just because of topics that have come up that I've noticed. Um, one of them is swimming. I dive into that pretty late in the podcast today. Um, what we should be doing in the preseason with regards to swimming. Again, just a bigger picture on how we approach our preseason and what we're looking to do. I talk about dabbling in bigger distances while we're um, racing for shorter distances. And what I mean by that is, let's say doing an Ironman when, we're, when our A race is technically a half Ironman. Doing a 50 miler when our A race is technically a 50K or, 20, uh, or a marathon. Um, and the benefits of that, because I do believe there's some big benefits to that, but also it depends on what our future goals are, what we want to achieve in the sport, and if we're heading in that direction, um, why we should think about that. I also talk about racing recklessly, and that might sound weird because I talk so much about maintaining control and executing the plan, but racing recklessly and risking things is an important aspect as well. And then I also talk about setting up a failure race, a race, um, and this isn't for everybody, but it's setting up a race potentially as you're looking into your 2019 season that you want to do things completely differently. You want to risk a lot or go about it completely differently, knowing that you're probably setting yourself up for failure, but you want to find out. And a race, an event where where there's accountability is the best way to do that in many cases. And then I also talk about what I love as a um, quote or an equation or a comment that I read the other day, a couple weeks ago now, but that potential equals hidden courage. I love how that um, unfolds so many things. Our personal potential um, our potential is actually hidden courage, meaning that it's hidden within us and what that means and how that can be applied not only to our endurance training and our athletic selves, but also our personal selves. And what is your potential? And is it truly hidden courage? Is it within you and you just have to muster the courage to do whatever it is you want to do? And I use a variety of quotes for that. So enjoy this episode, this episode 89. Thank you for always bearing with me through my philosophical musings there. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoy this episode. And please let me know.
I'm always open and I love to get your feedback. And I'm actually very thankful and grateful for all your feedback and how you share that with me. And if there's something you don't like, please let me know because I would love to also get a better sense of what's not working. So where you say, you know what, um, I prefer you don't do this. That, that's fine too. Um, I need to hear that. So, all right, enjoy the episode. A good question came up today in conversation with one of my athletes, well, in an email exchange. And as we are building, prepping, determining um, the season, uh, that is 2019, the question was, does he attempt his first Ironman that season or does he focus on a solid, um, close to true potential 70.3? And so um, we went back and forth a little bit. He hasn't done a 70.3 in a few years and he wants to return to that type of fitness and then continue to move on to Ironman. And if Ironman doesn't work in 2019, we can defer to 2020, but um, right now the priority is uh, probably making worlds in 70.3 distance and uh, seeing how the body as well as the training all unfolds. And so what I responded back was is that if there's an interest, and this is helpful to everybody um, listening or all my athletes as well, is that if you have an interest in doing Ironman and reaching a level in Ironman where you might want to see if you can qualify for Kona or even beyond that, be competitive near the front of the age group, but you've never done an Ironman, um, I would highly recommend planning to just get your feet wet and do an Ironman. Now, if we always wait until we're in the perfect fitness and shape in order to do an Ironman, you know, that can be pushing it off for many years. And the experience you gain and the experience you need to be competitive to truly race an Ironman takes a variety, a few Ironmans to do. Um, there are plenty of examples of athletes that do well in their first Ironman, but then those athletes also have a different standard uh, uh, relative performance that they're looking to achieve as well. So let's say their first Ironman, they go at 1030. Well, it seems to me then that they are clearly the, um, have the potential as an athlete, as a triathlete to do 930 because just what you learn and gain in fitness and repetitive bouts and um, maturity in the distance um, an hour is absolutely realistic. So it's all relative, right? Um, and that's why I always recommend if you're getting ready for a 100 miler or if you're getting ready for a 50 miler and you have an interest to be competitive in those distances, you got to get your feet wet and um, do the distance. <clears throat> and like I was saying, even in Ironman triathlon or ultra running, if we wait to be in the perfect fitness for it, it will be complicated because we'll always defer. There will always be a reason. There'll always be niggles. So instead, I'm a big proponent of just going out and doing it. And the confidence you gain of doing it and learning it, but also of knowing that you have more potential, that you could train differently, smarter, um, more for the event, and you just sort of did this one to get your feet wet, 
um, to dip your toes in the water, for, for lack of a better description, then that just helps you down the road so that you have more knowledge of the experience, you have the sensations, but then can also train smarter and more effectively for it. So in this case, <clears throat> excuse me, we discussed how we can still be competitive or not competitive, try to push our a, a solid effort and a solid um, um, build to a 70.3 and dabble in the Ironman distance in 2019. And how does that play out? Well, we'll focus the training for a five-ish hour event, right? Five-ish, six-ish hour. But as you all know, if you're getting ready for a half Ironman and the hours that you're doing for that, um, the leap to Ironman hours and being able to properly recover and adapt to the training isn't that big. That creates the platform to jump for six, eight weeks to a bigger level in order to take on an Ironman. Remember, clearly the qualifier here and clearly I want to state that that doesn't mean you're training for an Ironman to your potential, to your current potential, but it allows you to have good enough fitness to get through one, feel connected, um, observe, um, experience it, and then return back to 70.3 distance. Um, in this case, I would recommend, and I'm recommending to him, two 70.3s and a long buildup um, to those over the next few months, and then a Ironman there. And then from that eight to 10 week or six to eight week build in fitness, we come back off that and race another 70.3 really fast because the fitness, the aerobic endurance that we built for the Ironman, now pulling back from that and increasing even more speed, effort, intensity into that with more recovery late in the season, a full summer of building and power and speed and stroke and mechanics and all that. Hopefully, the desired outcome there would be that that becomes the best of the 370.3s now for the season. Now, it might be that the initial training load for the first Ironman is a lot on the body, and the body might be tired come later in the season, and we'll see that then. So that maybe the second 70.3 of the season might be the best, fastest one. So this is where all the nuances change and the observations and the communication and the, the adjustments need to be factored into as we're building the season and as we're in the season. But I guess the main part here is if you have an interest in an event, you got to do the event and learn about it. Now, what he might find is that, you know what, the Ironman distance it doesn't fit my schedule. The training doesn't fit my schedule, my lifestyle. I'm way off in any type of competitiveness in it and therefore want to stick to the 70.3 distance. Um, so then he's done one. He knows it and he'll give it some time before re-emerging into that distance. Or he might be hooked, right? He might love it. He might respond really well to the training. His body might really absorb that. So all those things are you know, dependent on the athlete. But the, the, the point we're making here with this um, discussion is that 
if you want to do an Ironman and are curious about what your potential is in an Ironman, you just got to get your feet wet and prepare to do one so that you can then get a better understanding of what the training entails and what the racing might entail in the future. And I would say the same thing for 50 milers. 100 milers you can't really, right? Because I mean, 24, 25, 30 hours of running, it takes weeks. And um, that, when I say weeks, that's a month and a half, two months to truly recover and rebuild from it. It's a brutal process. And so you can't really just dabble in a 100 miler. You can dabble with good fitness in a 50 miler by doing a few 50Ks. Let's say you're prepping for longer running and you know, you don't know if you want to go quite 50 miles yet. I have a lot of athletes that reach out for a 50K and then I'm like, well, you know, that's 31 miles and you'll feel good doing it and we'll get you ready for it. But um, do you want to challenge yourself? Is there a curiosity of 50 milers down the road? And many of them do say yes, of course, not knowing the training yet. But again, there too, if that is a desired distance in the future, I'll want to see that we try something either close to that on our training simulation, maybe a 40 miler, right? Or, um, you know, do one that might require a lot of hiking and taking it really easy and trying to um, perform at our current potential, current best outcome at the 50K distance, right? It's one thing performing at the distance where we ask for outcomes and effort and strategy and tactics versus dabbling in one, which in this case is the 50 mile, which means finishing it, which means observing, which means being conservative, which means pacing completely different. So uh, th those are the sort of things you want to weigh as you're thinking about the bigger distances and how you want to set up your season or your race distances in prep for them right? Let's say you're doing, you want to try a 70.3 this year, but you want to push, race, perform in the Olympic distance and so forth. So you can continue to um, migrate these two. And the same thing applies with the running. For example, you do two 50Ks or a 50K early in the season, you build to 50 miles, see how that feels. And then you come off that and race or perform another 50K, just like we discussed earlier with the Ironman and the 70.3. So that, that's a way to keep it gradual, to keep it healthy, to keep it focused, right? Because you're not putting pressure and expectations on yourself for the bigger distance. And you can use your fitness to then really see how you respond to over volume and um, over volume, meaning a, a lot more volume than you typically would do, but you're doing them at the lower intensities. And so if your body responds really well to that, because it, your race post the bigger volume for the bigger distance training um, goes really well, well, then you're onto something. You've learned something there that, okay, my body did respond really well to it. High volume, low intensity. I came out of that. I rested. I did some speed work and I had a great shorter distance um, event. And that can be applicable for future events of that distance, or it can be implicable that your body adapted, responded, absorbed the bigger volume as well. So 
it's a lot in there and um, something to sort of to work through in your mind as you're looking to the next few seasons for yourself. All right. I had a conversation with an athlete just the other day and they're getting ready. Him and his wife are getting ready for a event in a couple of weeks. And it brought up a discussion around training for a race and racing. And what I mean by that is that oftentimes, because of the training time we've put into it and how controlled and focused and measured and present and thoughtful we were during our training and it being a event, a race that we're using as sort of a stepping stone to move to either bigger distances or to bigger goals that we sort of lose what it is to what it means, what it is to actually race, right? And what that what that conversation revolves around is taking what we've learned in training, what we've simulated in training, what we've applied and tested and thought about and observed in training, what we've become smarter, more mature, more experienced at, and applying that in a reckless manner. I know that's a weird word to use right now, but let me go with it. In a reckless manner in the race. And the reason I say reckless is because when racing, we still want to conjure up the passion, the curiosity, the energy, the excitement of racing, right? And if we do our training right, if we've installed good habits, instilled, not installed, instilled good habits, and know exactly what we need to execute on race day, then I think race day is more strategic than it is tactical. Strategic can be adjusted. Strategy, executing our strategy on race day, means that outside factors, things we don't control, um, as well as energies on race day, can be adjusted for, applied differently, and still be successful. Tactical means that we are set, rigid, and executing exactly how it needs to be executed based off of parameters written out prior. And if there's changes to it, we're off balance, we're unfamiliar, we're not applying all our resources and abilities and observation to the race. Now, let me change the angle of this description a little bit. When we switch the perspective of looking at the race or racing as well is racing is about testing limits not controlled outcomes and that is why we train so that you're fit enough to test limits to be reckless like i was talking about training for a race in its entire definition right is preparing ourselves in order to properly race, in order to truly test our limits, in order to not have a controlled outcome. If I hit every marker like this, I should do a time like that. While it's nice to put that vision in our head and prepare ourselves for the race, like I say, we want to close our eyes and envision our day and practice that, 
absolutely. That isn't supposed to be a rigid um, roadmap. It's supposed to be strategic, like I said. Strategic versus tactical. As the common saying goes, right? Strategic is doing the right things. Tactical is doing things right, right? So there's one thing in planning, strategy, how I am planning for the day to unfold and to observe and to react and to apply. Tactics involve physically carrying it out in a certain way, right? And you don't want to veer from those tactics too much. Anyway, I don't want to get too much into the minutia of those two details, but I do want to highlight the fact that when we race, we want to be somewhat reckless. Not somewhat, get rid of the word somewhat. We want to be reckless. Not in our um, planning for it. Not in our execution of that planning, right? In calories, hydration, heart rate zones, or sensations. But we want to be reckless in that we throw caution to the wind a few times or a lot. We want to take it out strong. I mean, again, we have this as part of our plan, right? In this case, the athlete was mentioning to me, well, at this checkpoint, I'd like to be at this time and at the next checkpoint at this time. That to me is not racing. That's a controlled outcome. Now, of course, if you're gauging how you're doing for your day, those are data inputs. But like I've often said on this podcast, data is designed to be an input for evaluation, not to be the hard, um, um, hard, rigid uh, outcome for the day, a rigid roadmap for the day is what I'm trying to say. Racing allows us to sort of veer from that and sort of break through into new realms of what we're capable of. That's why it creates such um, surprising outcomes at, at times. And it surprises us to what we're capable of because we put caution out there. We threw caution to the wind a little bit. We overcame fears um, and we pushed beyond what we thought we were capable of. If everything we do when we race is in a controlled manner, well, we could just do a training day, right? We don't have to pay for a race entry. But by throwing caution to the wind, by um, leaving our avatar behind and pushing beyond that and um, saying, I felt good, so I went for it, well, good. Now, important there is to understand that When you make those choices in a race, and we've talked about this in the last two, three podcasts specifically with regards to Kona, I felt good, so I threw caution to the wind. That needs to be part of your race evaluation post-race. Like If you're going to be disappointed with your outcome, well, that's a different um, conversation than of saying, well, I threw caution to the wind. Put that differently is you know what, I'm happy with my result today. And I might look at you as your coach and say, well, okay, explain to me why that, because I'm not sure how I see that. Well, I threw caution to the wind a few times. I was curious to find out what I could do. 
This was a B race or just a training race, not a training race. You guys know how I feel about training race, but you know what I mean. Uh, a day to test what I've been doing in training. And therefore, I felt good. I applied some of the main concepts, but I also risked things at certain times. Awesome. I love, I would love to hear that, right? Um, what I often hear is the disappointment of a result when caution was thrown to the wind or we raced recklessly and therefore don't want to own up to the consequences of having done that. Because don't get me wrong, races have multitudes of different strategies, right? You can just go from the gun and see how long your fitness lasts you and how you hang on. You might have your best day. That might be how you need to race or what's best for your racing from a mental strategy and a physical strategy point too. Or you might like to be a rabbit or you like to be a pacer or you like to observe. My personal style of racing, because I've always been an endurance person, is to go steady, go steady, go steady, and observe how the race is unfolding in front of me. If I'm in the front, well, I'm still going to apply my energy that I had planned for the day and see how the field is coming up on me or how the field is responding around me, right? And then, because I've been controlled and steady and observant, now is the time to pounce. Now is the time to throw caution to the wind. Now is the time to push. Now, my biggest weakness as an athlete, and I know this from my swimming days as well as I've seen it in my triathlon days, is that I don't uh, pounce enough. If I'm having that day um, where I'm, let's say I'm in control of my out, um, my outcome, meaning my placing, I see that I'm placed where I want to be, um, and I see how I will finish with regards to time and placing, I'll just stay steady versus using those opportunities to help me grow as an athlete in order to test and push because the risk is low. I'm already either in first or have a, a lead that is has some margin for error. So that's exactly when I should test um, physical limits, mental limits, and so forth. And so that's something I've always noticed about myself. And I usually have to have a true conversation with myself when I'm in that position. Now, don't get me wrong. There's been plenty of situations, especially swimming, where I'm not in control of my race and my outcome. And I have to dig in and find um, another gear or apply a different strategy or race until I blow up or from that point, right, forward or I had a terrible morning swim and I need to get after it in the semifinals that night or um, I had a bad swim in a triathlon and I got to ride way harder than I wanted to in order to, you know, put myself back into position to have the run that I'm capable of running, but also that being enough. Um, when I've been too timid in the past, um, I Kona a couple of years ago, um, I ran my race, but I didn't bike hard enough in order to put myself into the position to run myself to the front. I ran out of real estate, right? So again, all these things are opportunities to race. 
And so the point here is truly to understand that racing is about testing limits, not a controlled outcome. And that is why we train, so that we're fit enough to enjoy race day, to observe race day, to live and apply on race day, to be reckless on race day, to experience it in its fullest of strong effort, of throwing caution to the wind a few times, of experiencing the full gamut of what racing truly is, to put our bodies and push them to the limit, but then also be fit enough to be able to withstand that and um, um, come back from that. Let's say a strong climb or a strong effort or uh, a strong hour or a strong surge and then still be fit enough to pull back slightly and gather ourselves while we're still in a good position or having a good outcome or a good race. And so we train in order to race, right? In, in most cases, in order to do an event competitively. And when that's the case, we need those events and we need that physical and mental opportunity to test limits. As we head into the 2019 preseason, and therefore also looking at the races we're looking to do and um, achieve our goals in, in 2019. I came across a passage by Sebastian Younger, the author of that awesome book called Tribe, as well as A Perfect Storm and so forth. And I thought it was good to share this quote and, and this passage and talk about something that might be an opportunity for many of us in 2019. I've applied this strategy a few times and it ties into the previous topics as well with regards to racing recklessly. Um, and so let me dive into this. It's a, a message at a high school commencement that he, that he spoke at. Here we go and I quote, you guys are programmed to succeed. The hardest thing you're ever going to do in your life is fail at something. And if you don't start failing at things, you will not live a full life. You'll be living a cautious life on a path that you know is pretty much guaranteed to more or less work. That's not getting the most out of this amazing world we live in. You have to do the hardest thing that you have not been prepared for in this school or any school. You have to be prepared to fail. That's how you're going to expand yourself and grow. As you work through your, the, the process of failure and learning, you will really deepen into the human being you're capable of being. And that quote and that passage. What I love about that, of course, there's so much to be applied from that passage. But for us in the ultra endurance aspect and endurance aspect of our racing is, is there something next year Something that you can put on the calendar where you can go into it with an expectation of failure. You have to be prepared to fail. Is there an event we can do where we really want to test our limits and are prepared to fail? Because that's how we're going to expand ourselves and grow. Grow as athletes, grow in our knowledge about ourselves, how we're able to manipulate our mind and body to fail. Is it worth doing something like that? And that's what I talk about with regards to putting something on the calendar that where we can possibly race recklessly, as I was just saying, 
or where we can change the way we race or um, go hard from the gun or do a distance that's unfamiliar for us in order to fail, right? And with the outcome of growing and expanding ourselves. And as we work through that process of failing and learning, we will, in, we will really deepen into the human beings you're capable of being. Now, that's a deeper aspect that we're not going to go into today. But from an aspect of being the athlete you're capable of being, pushing beyond those limits, pushing beyond your familiarity, pushing beyond the distances you've done, pushing beyond the type of training you've done, um, looking at things from a different angle and saying, well, I'm going to train like this next year. I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to set myself up for potential failure and learn exponentially from it because I'm in a completely different realm of how I would usually go about this. And that's the beauty of setting up races like this or setting up even events like this. And I'm not talking training simulations. That's not a fair way to go. It's got to be public. It's got to put you at risk. It's got to have some sort of um, accountability quotient to it. And many of you might say, well, Chris, you don't like training races. No, this wouldn't be a training race. This would be something that you do differently. So what does that look like? Well, that might look like you know, racing a 50K on trails completely different than you race. And then instead of running and controlling the flats, uh, as in running effectively on the flats, instead attacking all the hills, right? And recovering on the downhills on the flats. Instead of racing a triathlon by doing the bookends, riding your best, most powerful bike, highest possible wattage or highest possible effort, um, for once, for a half Ironman, for example, because Olympic distance really doesn't give us an insight, but a half Ironman, right? Or, you know, um, completely switching up the strategy in some of our events. Um, once you go uh, 50 mile, 100 mile, you, the, the difference there is, okay, 50 mile maybe, but 100 mile, we can't do enough of them to fail. So we wouldn't want to do that. Ironmans as well, unless you're a very experienced Ironman racer and you're on the front end of knowing you're going to be able to achieve, let's say, a Kona qualifier anyway to race differently. But those are truly exceptions. And I'm pretty confident that the people doing that that have multiple Ironmans in their year because they're going to achieve Kona anyway, they've done these type of exercises. But in general, also in training, what does that look like? Well, how about a month of doing training completely differently with regards to harder efforts, shorter, um, more powerful efforts, three days of rest a week, four days of training, or a two-week cycle of every other day off, or, right, because then that way you can go four, three with your workouts, four days on the first day a week of and three days off. And then the second week, it rolls into uh, four days off, three days on just because there's seven days to a week. But, you know, and see how your body responds and really push that envelope so that you learn again exponentially, that you learn from those failures. It ties into a bigger topic that I come across and actually think about quite frequently, and that is what I read is the uh, definition of potential. 
and because it comes up here too, um, the, with regards to potential and the human being you're capable of being. Potential, that person wrote or that quote said, is equivalent or equal to hidden courage. So potential equals hidden courage. What I love about that is it's truly in us. The potential is in us to achieve our outcomes, to achieve our growth, to achieve our desired outcomes and goals, to achieve those habits, to achieve that being better tomorrow than we wanted, than we are today. Um, achieving almost anything is in us. It's a hidden courage. And we just need to muster the courage, muster the energy behind that courage in order to achieve that. So potential equals hidden courage. It actually brings back a quote I learned as a boy in Germany because Wolfgang Goethe was a very prominent person, but his quote goes, whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, magic, and power in it. Begin it now. That's Goethe. And that's an amazing quote that ties into that her hidden courage. Your potential is your ability to start and uncover what's already in you. And you just need the courage to get it going. And that's why, as I've talked about on this podcast many times, I ask the athletes, are you sure there's not something more that we can achieve? Something scary, something really um, uncertain for you on the far edge of what you believe you're capable of? Because that will keep you um, motivated, but also very engaged in the process of daily grinding out the work that needs to be done, the layers that you can build upon layers. And having that um, fearful um, thought with regards to not achieving the hidden courage in you, um, achieving that potential is a huge um, motivator and energy boost daily to kick those feet and those legs out of bed and get going with your training, with your day, in order to execute your day the way you want it, to own that day so that you become the person and the athlete you want to be for today, right? And then repeat that in an effective, successful manner tomorrow. Because you already know what the plan is with regards to training. Hopefully you've written that out or you get it from me. And so then the growth from there is just executing and executing on that hidden courage, your potential. I had a conversation yesterday with one of my athletes about swimming in November. Well, in this case, late October, but yesterday was November 1st. So moving into November and what the desired outcomes are and what the goals are. And I actually came across the same conversation with another athlete of mine as she's also trying to figure out her focus into the fall. And then finally, I got an email this morning um, asking a little bit more about swimming and the focus at this time of year. And so let me answer that in a variety of ways. So one is that the athletes that I spoke to, in specific this one athlete, she was creating more her monthly 
goals and monthly outcomes in order to have a short-term focus that ties into a long-term goal. And um, I've talked about this before here on the podcast, having interim short-term focus with regards to how that fits into the bigger, longer-term desired outcome. And, you know, in athletics, and especially in our endurance world, because we can't do events every weekend or every month, a lot of them are too long and require too much recovery and so forth, as well as financially and time-wise, um, we set up goals in the future and then hopefully work systematically, method- me- methodically, as well as thoughtfully um, towards those goals. And one way that that really helps is to have short-term interim goals along the way that make you feel good, give you confidence, give you um, a sense of accomplishment with regards to I am on the right path track towards improving, getting fitter, smarter, better, stronger towards the bigger future desired outcome. And so how does swimming fit into that? In this case with that athlete, she um, she's talking about working on her swimming and running um, this fall and this winter with a um, planned, of course, uh, coast ride that she will be joining me on in uh, January that will take care of a big cycling boost, but maintaining a strong swimming fitness level and connectivity. Um, so that helps her in the short term. It's the time of year where getting into the pool indoors um, is an easier process um, with regards to applying time versus sitting on a trainer and toiling away in a basement indoors or somewhere, as well as um, running is a different sensation at this time of year, especially up north um, where snow and cold temperatures make that different, maybe some skate skiing maybe some general skiing for her, as well as, um, you know, treadmill, occasional outdoors, occasional when the weather's right with some um, yak tracks and so forth. So maintaining a balance of running fitness, connectivity, the ability to run about 90 minutes is what I usually recommend through the winter. If you feel good about running 90 minutes, that when you finish a 90 minute run, could you go longer? Yes, Um, you necessarily want to, maybe not, Um, just because you felt good for that 90 minutes. Um, Anything shorter is uh, not really endurance work. Anything longer requires a different um, focus and maintaining form and uh, energy levels is a little bit different. The reason I say that because after an hour and a half, you need um, a different type of muscle durability, pavement durability, pounding of the legs durability, even if you're running on cold, snowy ground or trails, that um, is hard to maintain through the winter. And so it leaves you either fatigued, um, not sore, but just fatigued for a couple of days, uh, nothing dramatic, but enough that it compromises the effectiveness of the adaptation of the future workout, but also... Um, it leaves you uh, applying bad form technique fundamentals beyond, let's say, that hour and a half. And again, that's one thing we all want to avoid is training bad form. There's no reason for that. If we start training bad form, we should stop and take a break or resume a workout later in the day 
and so forth. Um, so technically, in a big picture standpoint, endurance training is about um, training long enough and extending the time that we can maintain good form, good posture, good fundamentals as long as possible. In order to do that, we need to back off the intensity and therefore be able to not fatigue cardiovascularly as quickly and instead be able to go easy enough while maintaining good form. And what often comes up is for many people, and I just had this conversation the other day, is that uh, when the uh, when form breaks apart, right? How do we extend that time? And it starts very gently and very gradually. Um, it might only be forty or fifty minutes, and then we work our way to an hour and fifteen, an hour and twenty minutes, and so forth. And oftentimes we need to break that up. You know, uh, an hour and a half in the morning, and then some recovery for a couple hours, and another hour, even an hour and a half in the afternoon. Now we got in three hours of running in that day, not enough recovery in between for to not um, still stimulate unfatigued legs. But all of those three hours, let's say two hours and 50 minutes of those three hours that day, were good form, good footwork, good posture. So as we get fitter, we'll be able to extend that time more gradual, uh, more effectively, and therefore have a better uh, running form, posture, footwork, and so forth. But back to the swimming, um, what can we work on at this time of year with regards to swimming? Well, what's important in swimming for many is that getting the distance and power per stroke. And this time of year, and especially in November, if you're getting ready for something in the summer, the I would highly recommend is in slowing down and learning to swim more distance per stroke. Now that can be measured in how many straight strokes you take in a length. Um, that can be measured just in, in your not measured, but can be felt in your reach in your stroke. Remember when your freestyle's up in front of you, when that arm is reaching into the water, hand into the mailbox, and extending out and that arm is at 10 uh, at 11 or 1 o'clock far in front of you your hand is far in front of your head your arm is fully extended basically and uh, you start dropping your hand before your wrist and before your forearm and before your elbow so you first anchor it with your hand dropping then your wrist drops then your forearm drops and then finally your elbow drops that's your number one focus in swimming freestyle um, when it's out there, it's about reaching and feeling the water that early on, that far out in front of you. And as you dip that hand, as you begin the curl, that your fingertips already start coming down, and then gradually your hand follows your fingertips, and then your wrist follows those that hand, and the forearm follows the, um, you know, the the wrist. And so in order to create that leverage, that extension, that depth, it's a lot of slow swimming to feel that, to make sure you're aligned. It's a great time of year to videotape yourself, to take time for the things that you need to work on that once you get crowded in your training with regards to events and um, goals and speed and fitness that you don't have time for. Sure, you have time for some drilling, um, all the time, but not 
workouts, many workouts in a row where you can just take a step back, slow down your effort, slow down your swimming turnover, and focus on the things that you want to improve. The number one thing I see for athletes that triathletes especially, where it'd be very beneficial for them to improve is their kick. And many, many have this confusion around a kick that it needs to fatigue you and that it creates um, an oxygen deficit around big muscles and so forth. Well, in a lot of cases, that's then kicking incorrectly. And so what I will do in that case is work on the athletes, not necessarily only using a kickboard, but also vertical kicking in order to get those toes pointed and that the um, entire foot involved in the kicking motion, the flutter kick, truly the flutter back and forth, up and down if we're back to horizontal. And many use too much of a knee motion and an upper leg motion in order to add that to their kick but instead a light, small flutter kick in the back that is just acting as an outboard, you know, five horsepower engine sitting at the back of your vessel, your body, while it's swimming, is such a critical aspect of your swimming. A light flutter kick, while combined with a wetsuit, allows your arms to completely swim freestyle differently. It allows you to have an almost downhill swimming motion. It allows your body to be more, more neutral on the water. It allows for your extension of that arm out in front of you that I was talking about to take on a wave riding gliding format because while that arm is out in front, that flutter kick is carrying momentum forward to, with you. Um, it's not the only forward propulsion because as that one arm is extending out forward, the other one is just finishing its stroke in the back of the other side, right around the hip, that last push. So those are the things that we can work on at this time of year for swimming. Um, vertical kicking, you know, to get a good flutter kick going, um, to compare how a small kick versus a big kick range can help us. Um, working on integrating our arms into a kick. What I often have swimmers do in my swim clinics is that I start them with a 25 of kicking. And then the next 25, we take maybe a total of two strokes for the entire 25 while still kicking very strongly. Not strongly, but a good, um, connected, smooth, um, steady flutter kick. Then the third 25, we get four strokes per length, right? So all the while keeping a nice, smooth, steady flutter kick and then occasionally throwing in the arm motion. And more and more that we still maintain a dominance of the kick for the 25 and the arms that are pulling through, that are facilitating your freestyle are subservient to the kick. That's a drill, not always the case in swimming. Now, there's some world-class swimmers who swim like that, where their kick is their primary driver and their arms are integrated into their kicking. So that's uh, um, not a very common way to swim anymore because the arms have become more powerful with regards to the new pulling motion, higher elbow, um, and different um, underwater push-offs and so the, the lack of just uh, pulls per stroke and so forth. It, 
it's neither here nor there now for our discussion. But yeah, so those are the things that I would work on at this time of year. Working on the front end of my stroke, my reach, my hands, my grab of water way out in front of us, my shoulder rotation, and my kick. Now you say, whoa, 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 where'd that shoulder rotation come from? If we have our stroke proper on our arms in front, that reaching arm is creating a shoulder rotation because imagine if one arm is extended out front, the other arm is either in back or already exiting in the back of your stroke. And so your shoulders are rotated. Just imagine that doing it standing in wherever you are right now, one arm out front, one arm in uh, down low next to your hip or coming out from behind your hip, your shoulders are rotated. And so in general, what we also want to consider when we're swimming at this time of year, is my shoulder rotation effective? And I mean, I know this gets very complicated in order to time your arm reach and push and pull pressure of your hands against the water, combining that with the shoulder rotation. And I can talk about some drills in the future with, with, in order to help with that. But I'm just saying, even if we're not doing a great reach and getting a lot of power in the front of our freestyle stroke, if we can keep our ro shoulder rotation effective, it can still help our freestyle. Because as we've talked about before, and many of my athletes know, when our shoulders are both level in the water, our vessel, our body, the swim vessel that we're using, has the biggest surface area dragging against it. Just think how wide those shoulders are in the direction we're swimming. And so we want to reduce that drag by half, by only one shoulder being in the water and one shoulder being out. And as we switch arms in our stroke, the other shoulder drops in and the other, the opposite shoulder comes out. And on that axis is our head, our spine, right? And we're rotating around that axis. And ideally, only one shoulder is always in the water at the same time. And in that transition, that's where our acceleration and our power from our pull and our freestyle motion and the hip, the switch of the hips creates the most power as we're in the transition uh, from one shoulder to the other. And for a moment there, both shoulders being in the water. So uh, going technical there on swimming, but let me just go into this question real quickly because um, I know this question is out of order, but it's because I knew I was going to talk about swimming today. And then this uh, question came into my email and I was like, oh, good timing. So um, for those of you waiting for me to answer your questions, they're coming. And I bumped this to the top of the list. I'm sorry. Uh, hi, Chris. Thanks for sharing your knowledge on the podcast. I find it very interesting and valuable in realizing my ultra endurance goal goals. I have swim training strategy. I have a swim training strategy question that I believe others can benefit from as well. I'd appreciate it if you got back to me, but understand if you are very busy. Well, I'm getting back to you, but <laughs> on the podcast. I'm a relatively new swimmer. I've been swimming for about two years. I've done an Ironman swim in 115. It's pretty solid if you're a new swimmer and only been swimming for two years. How would you approach swim training in the preseason? 
Should I limit my distances while swimming and focus on retaining more proper mechanics, developing proper muscle memory, or should I swim longer distances and let my form deteriorate a little and develop more strength? So I'm going to stop right there. There's uh, more questions in that. But actually, this is a really good concept. I would do both. I would spend one workout, maybe two workouts a week on form, technique, drills, limiters, weaknesses to address more power on the front of my freestyle, kicking like I was talking about, and shoulder rotation and distance per stroke. And then once a week, yeah, turn the brain off and just swim, straight swimming, you know, and eight, three 800s, for example, um, with maybe 90 seconds rest, something like that, to just keep that long, steady, aerobic groove swimming going. Um, you know, does the other thing that I was going to say earlier too, and sorry, I'm a little scattered here in my thought process, but the other thing to bring up here is that what you're doing in November will not translate to your fitness in August or July or June. So once you back out of that equation, knowing, okay, fitness now will not carry over to the, the early summer. So what am I doing now to maximize the time I'm doing at the pool? And that is technique fundamentals and improving your stroke so that then when you do look for fitness gains, um, you're doing it on a different, more technically sound platform. So um, now, now many of you might argue, well, what about your short-term goals and fitting into long-term goals? Can you maintain a fitness level? Yes. Um, and can you maintain the ability to still hold the intervals and your send-off times and your speed? Yes. I'm just saying you're not going to gain new fitness and hold that for eight months, right? Um, even swimmers, let's say Olympic swimmers, college swimmers, who are high school swimmers who are all trying to progress to a new level of swimming, they're building a different type of foundation at this time of year. They're also doing technically zone two work, very little speed work. They're doing strength work. They're doing distance work, things like that, not to progress to a new fitness and speed level, but until, in order to, again, build a bigger platform, right? Throw into it that the swim season is structured a little bit differently with dual meets right now in college, with NCAAs in March, so you have a double top in fitness with regards to an A race at conferences and um, uh, NCAAs. Then you take a couple of weeks, you down, down, um, um, you, you lighten up your training load, and then you start getting ready for summer season, which is long course, 50-meter outdoor swimming. So it's a different season buildup. But again, there too, it's steps to NCAAs. If you're an Olympic swimmer and you have four years, right? Of course, you're working now towards becoming the better swimmer in four, in four years or for Olympic trials. But you have world championships. You have nationals. You have pan packs. You have a variety of different events to continue to improve in smaller steps as that fits on the path to the bigger picture goal in a couple of years. So again, what you do in November will not translate to 
early spring. So the best use of your time is exactly that. Technique, fundamentals, distance per stroke, power, um, in order to put more force and a higher turnover into that stroke that is now longer and more efficient and more effective, that's why we're doing the drills at this time of year. So that answers those questions. Also contributing to the problem, maybe pacing in the pool. Is there a percentage that I should be aiming for effort-wise during the preseason? That's a good, that's a good question. Um, is there a percentage I should be aiming for effort-wise during the preseason? Um, swim pacing, you should have three different speeds. And this is why I brought that up last, uh, last two episodes ago, or maybe last episode with regards to the swim clock and pacing. Your ability to know your paces and your times and your send-offs allows you to manipulate your speeds. We should have an easy, a steady, and a fast. Just like on the bike or running, we should have Z2, aerobic, go all day pace. We should have tempo, Z3, feels solid, feels connected, but um, a little bit faster. And we should have threshold zone four, where it's not really sustainable for more than, let's say, an hour, but um, also feels good, but requires um, us to push. Same thing in swimming. We want to have an easy effort and an interval and a pace that we swim, a send-off that we swim on hundreds and two hundreds, that we can maintain that pace, whether it's a hundred, a two hundred, a four hundred, a five hundred, or a thousand freestyle. Right? There is a steady pace that's slow enough to start, that becomes more difficult later in the distance, but they're all relatively the same. So when you're swimming 10 times 100, 8 times 100 on that interval, of course the first two or three feel very comfortable, very easy. But you want to be able to manipulate your energy, your output, your push on the water, same as you do cycling and swimming, um, so that you can maintain the same send-off interval. When you guys run at the track 10 times 400, 5 times 800, whatever that is, you don't, you hopefully run on a send-off every 90 seconds, every 75 seconds. Okay, that's maybe a bit fast. Every 90 seconds, every two minutes, every two and a half minutes, every three minutes. And each round, each 400 or each 800 is the same send-off. Now, do you start all out on the first 400 when you're doing it on a two-minute send-off? So that the first one you go, let's say, um, 80 seconds. And then the second one, because you went too hard, um, you only go 87 seconds. And then you go 93 seconds. And then you go 96 seconds. No. You start off knowing that you are going on the two, or let's say, let's say in this camp, a case two, two minutes for a 400. Let's say you can comfortably run in control, good leg turnover, but nothing hard, a 132, 92 seconds. And that's still on the send-off of two minutes. And then you do 10 of them. Sure, the last two or three don't feel as easy and controlled. Can you still hit 92, 95-ish? Yeah, but you need to focus more on form. There's some fatigue coming in. And you need to think of posture and leg turnover. But you know, you're getting the same amount of rest, 25 to 30 seconds per. But yeah, you don't start super fast just to slow down a lot. 
you want to maintain energy output. So of course the first three of those 400s, 10 400s running, are going to be feel easier. And then the middle three might feel good. And the last three might require some thinking. That's the same send-off in swimming. And you want to have that same understanding with regards to, let's say, hundreds that are easy pace. Maybe those are two minutes or 2.30, let's say. Let's say your hundreds easy are on a send-off of 2.30. That means you can do eight comfortably coming in on around two minutes or 2.10. Get your 20 to 30 seconds rest and be done and then push off to the next one. And little manipulations in effort or kick or pull through, pulling on the water, give you maybe a second or two here or there. So that's good. Now your your tempo, your your medium, your steady, your stronger effort might be a send off of, you know, 215, 210. You know, you're coming in at 152, 155, you get 10 to 15 second rest, right? And now your strong effort, your um, your fast effort, your pushing hard effort might be two minutes for 100 freestyle. And you come in maybe at 147 or maybe even the same 152, but it requires more fatigue and it requires more effort. Or, you know, let's say you're coming in at 147, 150, you get maybe 10 seconds rest. On the second one, it becomes harder because you, you need more rest technically for 10 than 10 seconds in order to maintain that time. But that's the whole purpose. Unlimited rest to still swim fast and pacing your output and how much you have to dig. And maybe the third of that one on two minutes, those fast or the fourth maximum of that four on two minutes really require a best effort to make the interval. That's what we wanna be doing in order to gauge swim speeds easy, moderate, fast. And so, yeah, that's another thing. I would spend this preseason focusing on that come the regular season, come the training for my events, that I'm ready to have send-offs and really can monitor my fitness gains and my progression and my speed gains and um, have different effort levels so that when I am swimming my Ironman swim, I can start off um, strong and I know I can maintain that speed because in practice, I've held, you know, early on after a short warm up, I've been able to hold eight 100s at X and then still swim the rest of my workout effectively at Y, right? So that then into an Ironman swim, you can swim the first five, 600 yard again at X, knowing that you have that speed and that fitness and that efficiency and that economy of your swimming motion to still maintain good um, speed Y for the rest of the swim. But if we only swim on without intervals, we don't know what that is. We don't know what hard, medium, um, easy is and how to apply that in different effort levels on the on our races, especially in open water where we don't have a pace clock or, and we're not checking our Garmin while we're swimming. It shouldn't be this big surprise that when we get out of the water after an Ironman swim or a half Ironman swim, we look down at our watch and go, oh, or oh, it... You should have that feel for how fast you're swimming because you did it in training on the send-off intervals. So uh, is there a percentage I should be aiming for effort during the preseason? 
It, you should be aiming for an effort that allows you to maintain technically sound freestyle swimming. You should be aiming for efforts, maybe not as many fast efforts, but definitely some medium and a lot of easy efforts in order to test out your, your technique gains and improvements at a medium effort, majority wise, and then at a fast effort occasionally. But most of the time, excuse me, should be revolving around an easy aerobic swim all day effort so I can pay attention to my stroke and my kick and my shoulder rotation versus what my pace is. Um, how do you slow down your pace in the pool without your muscles fatigue forcing you? Well, I just answered that in a long way. You need to become a better swimmer, more efficient swimmer, have different speeds, work off of a pace clock because most of you are swimming too hard. You're putting too much effort into the swimming. And I see it with all triathletes, but also runners early on in their starting, or even in their running and their biking, right? Many of you might remember when you were beginner triathletes, um, or if you're a beginner triathlete now, how if you would go out for a workout, you would just go hard, that 90 minutes, or that 60 minutes, or that 45 minutes. No, that's not going to help you get better. You want to have different outputs and different efforts and different speeds and different heart rates and different, you know, motions. Because again, your ability to maintain your speed efficiently, effectively, like I was saying earlier with running, is the same thing swimming and biking, right? You want to be able to maintain good form as long as possible. Um, does purposely slowing down mean you slow down your stroke rate? Try to catch less water or kick less. I answered that. Um, no, slowing down means that you're gliding more, getting more distance per stroke, or in more control of um, your glide and your forward propulsion. It doesn't mean that you're sinking more. Um, swimming slowly, if you have the proper arm leverage, which means hand sinks before wrist, sinks before forearm, sinks before elbow, and then it starts pulling back, right? Um, then you're never falling. You're never sinking, even if you're swimming slow. Now, is there a little bob, meaning until your arm creates the leverage of that motion of catching and pulling water, there is a little bit of a drop off. Your, your body starts sinking somewhat, but then that next second, half second of the, the arm creating the leverage of the pull quickly moves you back to leverage position, um, body on the water, propulsion, propulsion being forward. Um, I think I have a slow stroke rate and very little propulsion from the kick already. I already spoke about the importance of kick. Now stroke rate, that's interesting because many do also have this. A slow stroke rate is common, which is a good problem to have. Um, but if you if you have a slow stroke rate and it's bad technically, fundamentally not sound, then you're going to have double problems. Then you're sinking. Um, so what I would focus on there is also spending some time this fall and pretty of increasing that stroke rate, seeing what that does to heart rate and breathing needs and finding out where the efficiencies are and economics of your swimming and technically sound swimming is. So um, appreciate any feedback on this. 
always look forward to hearing your next podcast installment. So I think that should help answer that um, and give you a good idea of swimming for now in the preseason. I am, as I sent out in my newsletter this week, November 1st, um, planning on a swim camp this year. Um, so many athletes want swim help, and um, I will need help for it, and so that's why I can't announce dates Um as some of my athletes can attest, I don't have all the answers swimming. I need other coaches to help me with it. I can help the majority of swimmers, but not all. And um, just because I don't have the expertise, I've always been a swimmer, and I didn't study sort of all the fundamentals like that for different body types. I've studied and been around swimmers and improved swimmers and those who already know how to swim well, I can help them a ton. And then some beginners, I can help dramatically improve. But then there's always some um, that I've had very little luck with. And some of my athletes know that. They're, they're, they see my frustration and sense my frustration. And what I do then, or what I've done more frequently lately, is um, refer their video or refer their swimming to another coach or get uh, input from um, another swim coach that I trust. So, But yeah, so that being said, a swim camp this uh, late spring, early summer, so that, of course, you can apply that swimming to your season. And um, I'll be talking about those details once I have them more um, soon. But I have some pretty fun ideas around that. And um, yeah, um, it, it, would be a, it would be a fun weekend. It would be three days or three and a half days um, with a, a variety of coaches in a fun environment that can make it worth everybody's time. All right. I just finished a run and I was thinking about this podcast and what I recorded earlier before I went on the run. And as you can hear, I'm sitting in my truck, not recording with a microphone, but just with my phone, because I spent some time thinking about the philosophy that I was talking about earlier with regards to exploring our true potential and living our days with a few minutes or a few seconds of self-care and connecting and finding that radio station and dialing in and getting that connection with our higher consciousness. And I wanted to make sure that I am not coming across as if I have the ability to do that. <laughs> Far from it. I mean, I would think to say that I am trying and I try often, but I am surely not close, not perfect for in many ways in my own self-growth and my own self-care and my own self-evaluation. And there's days where I truly do screw up and I'm impatient or intolerable or um, not the person that I want to be with regards to self-care and balance and the true expression of who I truly can be and potential. But with that, I bring it up because why do I even talk about these things on the podcast? Why do I go into balance and so forth? And that is tied to the true expression of what I want to be and what I believe I can be. But I don't know how that manifests itself and where that is going. 
but I do know that I share a love and express a love in nature, the outdoors, being healthy, being fit, being connected, being alive, being um, in connection with our inner self, physically, mentally, and spiritually in some way every day. That I do have a passion for. And I'm not sure where that will lead me or what direction that will take the podcast, my coaching, um, my, my relationships, any of that. But I do know that I'm drawn in this direction. I do know that this is where my true self and the expression of my true potential is drawing me to. Is it the answer? I don't think so. I don't think I've reached that point yet. But going by the mistakes I make every day and how imperfect I am, there's only one way I can think of it with regards to what I'm trying to communicate. And that is, I read something or heard something um, a couple of months ago that mentorship doesn't mean that you're a master in something or that you figured it out. Mentorship means that you're one step ahead of the people that you are mentoring, that you are one branch further up the tree, that you're a little bit higher up the ladder and can lend a a hand in order to help guide that person further up the ladder, to not pull them up to your level because they have to go through the steps themselves, but instead to lend a helping hand, to extend an olive branch, to extend a branch in general that that person has something easier or a clearer path to navigate. And I guess that's all I'm trying to do with this podcast. And when I do the philosophical piece, not the podcast with regards to the training and the coaching and helping you all achieve your endurance goals and get a better understanding of your fitness and your growth with that. But with regards to the balance, with regards to the three-legged stool, with regards to your longevity and your health and your future outcomes, with regards to your mindset and what fitness and health and nature and outdoors and reconnecting and breathing and vibrancy and a strong heart and a strong body and a strong mind and a strong spirit and a strong physical skeleton meat suit that we're in can be, that I do know that I want to continue to share that and be a mentor. And not a mentor like I was saying that I'm that here I am, I can spew more knowledge than others because I know more. No, but that I'm maybe a couple of steps ahead um, and that I can hopefully provide some guidance and some clarity and a roadmap to how to better do this and how to better execute this, this expression of ourselves um, in, in the form of endurance training, in the form of balancing it all, and in the form of just feeling alive every day. So thank you for listening this week. Thank you for indulging in me. I got some great feedback from one of my uh, listeners. She actually wrote out a table of contents and broke it down by second, all the things that I topic, talk about in regards to topics. So I am going to give that a first attempt this week. I don't think I'm going to have it before I send this off to be um, published. I, I don't know if that's what you do with a podcast, publish, release. But I will work on, um, with regards to a show notes or some sort of um, 
spot on the website that you can see and jump over things or go directly to topics because I've gotten a lot of that feedback and I know that that's very helpful. And then also, for those of you that don't want to listen to some of the things that I talk about, which I don't take personally, I'm just sharing and I'm doing my best, right? Um, then you can skip over that too. And you can, or you can jump right to this. But um, yeah, I just, the main part that I wanted to get across in this closing is that I surely am not perfect and I don't know more than others. Um, I just know that what I have done to connect with my inner self feels really good and provides a ton of clarity and is pulling me in that direction. And what I feel and what I observe and what it does for me, I believe it can um, be just as positive and powerful to so many more out there. And um, if that's my athletes or not or anybody, even if it's just one person, um, it's of value. So have a great week. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for indulging me. And I look forward to talking you, to you all again next week. Have a great week, everybody.